with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Coming up on this show, Sharon Heard in discussion with Donna Flood, and uh, they're going to concentrate on Donna's background as a nurse, as this is National Nurses Week. Donna Flood, of course, from the Prince George Hospice Society. But to start today's program, it is this morning's front burner from CBC News. Hey, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Loneliness is a word we're hearing more and more of these days, a seemingly invisible problem that has taken hold across much of the Western world, but one that can take a dangerous toll on our mental health. So what does all this mean in the age of COVID-19 when we are forced to isolate and for weeks and maybe months to come? On today's episode, we tap into the different types of loneliness this pandemic is unlocking and how the experiences and emotional consequences of loneliness aren't the same for everyone. This is Front Burner. Joining me is cultural historian Faye Bound Alberti. Faye recently wrote the book, A Biography of Loneliness, The History of an Emotion. Hey, Faye. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Um, I want to start with a very basic question and one where the answer may seem so obvious. But tell me, what exactly is loneliness? I think the best way of conceiving of loneliness today is an uncomfortable sense of emotional lack between the relationships that we have and those that we want. And really, loneliness is not one thing, although we talk about it as one thing, and we almost presume it's a single emotion like anger or fear, but loneliness is made up of lots of different emotions. Um, So you have sadness or anger or resentment or jealousy. And it's those complexities, I think, that make it such a challenging emotional state to understand. And the challenge has predated coronavirus. We know um, that we live in the midst of what has been called an epidemic of loneliness. When Dr. Vivek Murthy was Surgeon General of the United States, he went on a listening tour of America. That meant addressing opioid addiction, diabetes, and heart disease. And then something he wasn't really prepared for. Uh, It turns out that loneliness is associated with a reduction in your lifespan that is as severe uh, as the reduction in lifespan that you see with smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's greater than the impact on mortality of obesity. But I imagine that because of our physical isolation from one another, the lack of contact, of touch, of communication in the real world, that COVID-19 has exacerbated our loneliness. What types of loneliness or type of loneliness are people experiencing right now? Can we parse that? The most palpable difference right now is that sensorial disconnect. So we are very much isolated from other people or we're isolated with other people who may or may not be the people that we want to be isolated with. Um, So it's that lack of ability to hug and to touch other people that people living alone have particularly observed to me. It's thinking about the ways in which social media is and isn't uh, a viable alternative to general in real life human interaction. Um, But really, as you say, COVID-19 has exacerbated existing problems in society. And so it's exacerbated loneliness in the ways that we might expect, so that people who are already very vulnerable are more vulnerable. This has been sheer hell, really. Before COVID-19, Martha spent hours by her husband Willard's side. 
He has advanced dementia and lives in a long-term care home. He must be looking for me because he always did. He was always looking to see if I'm coming, if I'm going to be there. So I often wonder what must go through his mind when he doesn't see me, he can't see me, he can't hear me. On the one hand, then, we are all in the same boat, right? We're all dealing with our loneliness and our, our complicated feelings of that in different ways. But it isn't equitable, is it? Like some people are more prone to be lonely. There, there, are, there are conditions in place in society that make some people more prone to it, yeah? I think that's right. And I tend to focus on the difference between structural loneliness and existential loneliness. So structural loneliness is what I mean when I talk about people being alone and isolated from others because they don't have people to help them. They are um, in some way have disabilities or they are unwell or they are very isolated socially. Um, And this can range from being homeless to being unemployed to being a new mother without any help. And then there's existential loneliness, which is really about whether we feel we belong to society and to our friendship networks and our families. And, And that can affect people regardless of their material circumstances. And it's important too I think isn't it to think about the fact that um, that loneliness and solitude are very different things uh, what what COVID-19 has done has made us think what does solitude have to do with loneliness so is solitude a choice versus loneliness being something that's just part of the human condition I think that historically solitude has always been seen as being something that could be positive and negative. Um, Time away from other people has traditionally been associated with the ability to commune with God or commune with nature or find some creative pleasure. It's only around about 1800 that we have the rise of a language of loneliness. And at that time, we've already got um, the emergence of intensive urbanisation, industrialisation, a decline of God as being the only explanation for the universe. And so there is this growth of kind of um, a feeling of disconnect from other people. So loneliness was not something that early modern or medieval doctors worried about in the way that they do now. Yeah, what's what's changed fundamentally of how we think about loneliness that makes us um, concerned about it nowadays? I think the rise of loneliness is very much uh, linked to the idea that When we have a a world without meaning, which is a very sort of early 20th century existential philosophy view, a world without meaning, without God, without certainty, we have opportunity on the one hand, and that's what uh, capitalism is all about. But we also have a sense of uncertainty and fear and anxiety. And quite a lot of the way that we uh, live, particularly in the West, is about personal achievements. It's about being uh, gregarious and extrovert and successful in our relationship with others. And that eliminates the differences between people and the fact that some people prefer to be alone and have a more introverted nature. Um, And actually, for many people, there's a lack of meaning in their lives, which cannot be filled by material goods or, I suppose, achievements in, in a very secular way in which we consider achievements. certain capital on loneliness. In other words, it is such a huge phenomenon, Mm -hmm. um, says the research, that it's become epidemic levels. Holy 
Following data from the Angus Reid Institute conducted in partnership with Cardis shows nearly half of the population says they are somewhat lonely or very lonely. That chronic loneliness, some experts say, can actually be lethal. The situation, as you well know, in the United Kingdom, had the government there appoint a minister of loneliness two years ago. The new role will tackle solitude in the UK, where more than one in ten people feel isolated. I've been shocked and indeed humbled by some of the personal stories I've heard. 5.23 p.m. There was rush hour and I was standing up on the tube and there were so many people around me. And I was just sobbing. Not one single person looked up or saw me or spoke to me. So talk to me about the toll of chronic loneliness and what it can take on someone. Because this isn't like, I feel lonely today, tomorrow I'll be fine. We're talking about an ongoing state of loneliness. Yeah, I think, and the emergence of um, a minister for loneliness and so on represents a recognition that loneliness is very damaging. It's damaging because it costs a lot. Um, bluntly, a lot of older people who are lonely uh, creates a kind of burden on the state. And that's a lot of the language in which people use when they talk about the epidemic of loneliness. But people are also talking about teenagers being lonely. In Canada, we've done a study about university students, first-year university students. 66% of them feel extremely lonely. Our mothers being lonely. You're in this fog of newborn and motherhood, and it is a really lonely time. You're questioning everything women who are unemployed being lonely. So there's, there's not now a category of society that we can't say is lonely at some point in time. Now, the challenge is, I think, that, as you say, there's a real difference between being chronically lonely and being uh, temporarily lonely. Um, there are pinch points of existence in which all of us are going to be lonely at some point while we're working out who we are and what we want from life. Um, but then that's compared to chronic loneliness, which is when it's accompanied by severe psychological and physical health problems often. And that's when it can become a real problem. One of the challenges, I think, with COVID-19 is that we simply don't know how long people will be in isolation. And that and time and loneliness intersect in really complicated ways. And so there have been warnings um, about, you know, the consequences of the state that we are in right now. Things like depression, substance abuse, uh, PTSD, even post-traumatic stress disorder, not people taking their own lives. Uh, the study warns that the isolation and the anxiety from the lockdown may be responsible for as many as 75,000 drug overdoses and suicides over the next decade. So we're looking at the three things, unemployment, isolation, and of course the uncertainty. We don't have a vaccine. We simply don't know what's going to happen from day to day. That's the, the part of this coronavirus puzzle that we are mm. perhaps just seeing the front end of and will play out over time. For me, I think one of the most challenging things of this whole epidemic has been seeing people have to deal with bereavement and loss and not being able to go through the usual rituals that we associate with saying goodbye to someone. And I do think that that is going to have longer term implications on um, on you know high levels of grief and mourning in society. And I also think there's going to be a lot of anger too about how certain governments have handled things. So there's going to be a lot of emotions um, that are coming to the fore after this pandemic. You said that 
look, it doesn't matter what your demographic is. Loneliness doesn't mm-hmm. just affect one demographic. And we have for some time now talked about um, teenagers um, and young people and the loneliness crisis that has befallen them. We've tied it a lot to them being on their gadgets and their phones and not um, interacting in a physical way with their friends and so on and so forth. And yet here we are in COVID-19 saying, look, you got to stay away from those friends. You connect on the Zoom or the Skype, how we're talking or all those things. Talk to me about that aspect of it, like teenagers and, and kind of the yeah. the turn we've asked them to make and how that will might affect their loneliness. I think it is a real problem for teenagers right now. Um, and as you say, we've often been quite worried collectively about the impact of social media on young people's lives. And part of that is, I think at the moment, we're having to recalibrate our anxiety around social media because historically we've always had an anxiety about a new technology that changes how people relate. Um, the same kinds of arguments were made about telephones um, as they have been made about social media. I think that many teenagers now are very uh, pivotal moments in defining who they are and not to be able to see their friends I think is particularly challenging but it would be a lot more difficult I think for teenagers if they did not have social media. It's only really since the 1950s that we've thought of teenagedom as being a particular state that we have to move through a particular time of our lives Um, and it's now associated with a time as a time when we really define who we are and make these long-lasting friendships and we learn how to engage with other people Um, and I think Temporary loneliness is a necessary part of that as we go through life. And it would be only expected, I think, when people are trying to work out who they are, that they will have pockets of loneliness. One of the interesting things, I think, in terms of long-term chronic loneliness is that there are definite associations between people who are lonely in later life um, and when they're elderly and people who are lonelier when they're young. So there seems to be some correlation between the coping mechanisms and the ways in which we develop relationships as a child and as a teenager with how we are later in life. That's part one of this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. And now, part two of this morning's front burner from CBC News. Is loneliness, you know, a, a, a pan world problem? In other words, does everyone just suffer from loneliness no matter what culture you belong to, what society you live in, what country you live in? Mm-hmm. I think I would have said in the past, no. I would have said that it is particularly prevalent in countries where there is a high degree of individualism. But what we're seeing with globalization, of course, is that societies are becoming very similar and they're becoming homogenous. So we have a recent rise, for instance, of reported loneliness in Thailand, where you have um, a change in society and an emergent um, middle class that has a lot more access to consumer goods than in the past. And this is a very kind of typical development uh, that we've seen elsewhere. And what this does is it reminds us of that relationship between material goods um, and loneliness and the ways in which sometimes people who are very lonely, they desire a lot of consumer goods, but then having the consumer goods creates more loneliness. So there's that sort of complex um, system at work. Um, And at the same time, it becomes very difficult to make these kinds of global comparisons because countries that are traditionally collective um, might even have more confidence about saying they're lonely than countries that are individualistic. Yeah. 
You know, I live in a household with four other people. And so people always say to me, my friends say to me, well, you're not lonely. You you have all these people around you. And I say, you know, there's a difference between being alone and loneliness, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. And I think that adage about us being lonely in a crowd is really important because you can be lonely in in a marriage and many people who are married are lonely. You can be lonely uh, within families because it's about having some sort of uh, connection, an emotional connection between yourself and another person. And it doesn't have to be um, a crowd of people. There just has to be somebody who you feel understands you and somebody that you feel known by. Um, And so it's really about the kind of relationships that you have and the quality of those relationships um, which is probably why at the moment some people are feeling particularly lonely because their relationship uh, networks are so reduced whereas we often have different friendships for, that fill, fulfill different functions at the moment we're asking quite a lot of the people that we are uh, isolated with that is for sure <laughs> um you know one of the descriptors of this pandemic is that it is um the quote-unquote great equalizer mm. what about loneliness amid this pandemic and the way it impacts different parts of the population i mean is it serving as some kind of great equalizer when it comes to loneliness well i think i really do take issue with the idea that it's an equalizer just because it impacts people so very differently and we know that it depends on ethnicity and it depends on wealth and it depends on privilege in chicago black people represent 30 percent of residents but more than 70 percent of covid deaths Dr. Quam McKenzie says Canada's practicing bad medicine by not collecting the race of COVID-19 patients. Certain groups of people are systematically disadvantaged. Even, I mean, what I've noticed in the UK is the number of people who live in high rises and have no access to outside space. Um, so the quality of experience when you're able to go outside into your garden is going to be different than when you have literally nowhere to go with young children. And I think that's important because the environments that we're in do impact on our loneliness. Um, there are well, uh, well-proven well associations between being in the natural world, for instance, and feeling less lonely. So it's almost as though the kinds of connections that historically we've found um, with God or with some sense of meaning outside of oneself, people can also get through the natural world because nature can fulfill some kind of sense of, of a being that's greater than yourself. Um, so I think that it's not so much an equaliser as we might imagine. And so solitude um, is kind of a privilege. I think solitude can be a privilege for a lot of people. And one of the things that I've noticed historically in studying uh, loneliness is that we have female writers in particular, like Virginia Woolf or Sylvia Plath, who might have written about the need for loneliness, not just solitude, but actually to feel that emotional pang of loneliness, to be able to imagine the world differently and to write. Um, But that is a very, it's a very white middle class position. I'm glad you brought up Plath um, as an example of someone who said, look, look, you need to experience loneliness. It is part of who you are and, and, and all of those things. And I guess, yeah. and I'm not asking you to be Pollyanna-ish about this, but is there an upside, a positive side to loneliness? Yes, I think that there is. And I'm always a little bit hesitant of saying this because I'm aware that so many people experience loneliness in negative ways. Being lonely and not just being solitudinous, but being lonely can make us see the world differently. As someone who studies loneliness, I've had lots of emails from people saying they have found it wonderful 
to be alone. They found it great to know that the door's not going to, um, the doorbell isn't going to ring. They're not going to be obliged to go to a party. They can have mental peace. They can, they can, you know, live in their pajamas all day. They can have a retreat from the kind of craziness of work. Partly because sometimes it's because we're overwhelmed um, with everyday life and we just need to step back. And and sometimes because people live very very sociable lives when they just need a little more downtime and that's so that's separate from the ability to write or be creative there is definitely a need for solitude and even loneliness in life sometimes we are seeing the opening up um, of economies around the world which means we're all getting out a little bit more ormstown quebec students doing something this hour that no child in canada has done for months and that is step into a classroom. There's only going to be 28 out of 188 kids coming back to school today. They will go outside for recess, but it won't be a free-for-all staying in those physical distancing guidelines. We're not anywhere back to what uh, we were pre-coronavirus, but at some time in the future, we come out of um, self-isolation. And there was this piece recently in The New Yorker that said, um, this is the quote, that loneliness is grief distended What are going to be the long-term effects of this lockdown, do you think? I think in terms of loneliness, there are going to be some long-term impacts um, that will make us really think positively even about what is it that we need from our social relationships? What are the things that have worked for us and haven't worked for us in lockdown? Um, Are our relationships fulfilling to us? And if not, what can we do to change them? Um, I do also think that this is going to be the first of many lockdowns over the next few years. I don't think that this is going Mm. to disappear anytime soon. So in some ways, I think some of the coping strategies that we might have developed this time, some of the ways in which we might envisage the world uh, and of work and of childminding, the ways in which we can actually do things quite differently potentially could have positive um, impacts in the long run. You know, one of the things that I've been, um, I guess, a little surprised by, but really heartened by is people in my uh, circles who... um, probably wouldn't admit out loud that they were lonely just saying that but like it's okay for us to say to one another right now yeah that I'm lonely yeah I think that's right and also I think accompanying that um, people who are often lonely have for the first time been able to have a voice which is heard by other people so that rather than seeing lonely people as somehow failing which is what we're very bad at doing I think in the west someone can say I'm lonely and know that they will be understood because many more people have had that experience and it's one that's been imposed on them so in the same way that people with intense anxiety are reporting feeling less anxious because they feel that that experience is now being shared by lots of people like somebody else is carrying the load lonely people are reporting that they also feel understood in a way that they haven't before and so that and uh, it's quite ironic really because with enforced solitude and enforced isolation could actually bring people together hmm. it's been nice to think through all this with you together <laughs> really nice to talk to you okay take good care Faye. today, I have some news I want to catch you up on. It's a potential game changer as Health Canada approved the first COVID-19 serological test. The test will be able to detect antibodies for the coronavirus. 
at least 1 million Canadian blood samples will be collected and tested over the next two years. Experts say this will help contribute to a better understanding of whether people who have been infected are immune to the virus. That's all for today. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for listening to Front Burner. We'll talk again tomorrow. Frontburner is a production of CBC News. Frontburner can be found on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM. And now Sharon Hurd and an interview she did with Donna Flood from the Hospice Society on a Tuesday afternoon Senior Moments program. First off, they recognize the fact that it is National Nurses Week. It is, and we are so lucky at Hospice to have some of the best nurses and carers, um, caring for the people in our community, and I'm so thankful for all of the work they do and how much they, they support our community. Yeah, and you know, I, when I started working, I was 16 years of age and I worked at Emergency Department of Toronto General as a clerk. And I knew who ran the place, and it was Miss Pitts. <laughs> <laughs> and Miss Pitts was the head nurse of emergency. I've never seen anybody move a bed like her and do things as quick as her. And she was one of the nicest people I've ever known, but boy, was she ever... Um, an emergency nurse, and Dr. Tovey was the chief of, of the hospital, and they had worked in a mass unit at one time. And boy, oh boy, Donna, did I ever learn a lot from those two. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you, that is living in a place where things are changing every moment, and they have to be agile, they have to be, you know, on their toes, but continuously kind, because uh, the work, the nature of the work they do is caring for people, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know... Um, what a again, wonderful experience. And so, do you mind me, uh, do you mind sharing with a few folks about a little bit of your your experience? Because I know that you were up north for quite a while. Oh, Sam, I have been so, so incredibly blessed by picking nursing as my career. I have been able to do and see so much. Um, I actually started out at Six Kids in Toronto. That's where um, I started my career at 18 years old, um, <laughs> working there. Um, my goodness, the things that we would see, um, because children flew in from all over the world. Um, to get cared for at sick kids. And if you didn't believe in miracles before you started working there, you certainly did when you left because there was some miraculous work going on. It, I was part of the first liver transplants for children. Yes. Um, you know, it it was, um, even though it was kids that were sick and that's always hard, yeah. it was still always a very positive, uplifting place. Yeah. And then... I got to go um, to Bermuda, and I worked in Bermuda on the pediatric ward there for quite a few years. Oh, nice. um, I, I know. It was fantastic. Um, what was fun about that is any sort of referral that we had for a higher level of care went to Toronto Sick Kids, so I often got to transport the kids home. Oh. So that, that gave me a little break to go home. Yeah. Um, 
what happened there, though, which is kind of funny, every time I thought I might want to go home, visit my parents or any of my friends, they'd be like, no, 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 we'll just come and see you. Oh, and so it was like, like yep, always, coming to, come <laughs> to see me and stuff. So, you know, that uh, never was lonely when I lived in Bermuda. I was that sure. If I'd known you were there, I would have baked your cake to come <laughs> <I> too. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was um also showed us that uh, the Canadian medical system is so respected worldwide yes. that the accreditation for the hospital was also the Canadian accreditation. A lot of our specialists were Canadian-trained physicians. Bermudians would go to Canada to get their training. Yep. Uh, the respect of the Canadian medical system was huge all over the world. You know, we're so respected. And you probably um, worked with some pretty famous doctors. Oh, absolutely, we did. Um, one of the, uh, well, in Toronto Fictions, there was a lot that ended up, uh, one of the most famous ones was the one that actually ended up going down into the state. And he was good friends with Cher, and he was the physician that, you know, did all that work, um, craniofacial work on children and plastic surgery, and when she did math, yep. that sort of, you know, he was, he was the famous doctor there, and... Because you're right, uh, they just um, the uh, government kept them in the dark of a lot of things. Yes. Right? So they, they didn't even know why. Because it was also the height of the AIDS epidemic. So understanding why people were dying, oh. villages were left destitute with you know no people in them because of the AIDS epidemic. It it was just um, you know where we can really appreciate our public health keeping us informed.
places to survive. It was out mid mid Calcutta. Um, yeah, it was the poorest of the poor, and that's who came to her house where people were left literally on the steps, and we would bring them in and care for them. Um, because there was nothing. There was a lot of the young girls with sorry burning that their whole bodies would be burned and, oh. you know, just left on the doorsteps. Um, but again, remarkable recovery with just great, great caring and love and support. And, uh, you know, um, well, that's the mother's love. And, and, yeah, it, it's, uh, it is amazing really if if you can show someone that they are worthwhile um how good they start to feel about who they are dis- despite the scars absolutely the resilience of the human spirit when they know they're cared for right yep and so calcutta and then did you decide you better come home and and have well, a rest she sent me home she says there's nothing you can do those people up in the north of where you live they said you should go help them <laughs> <laughs> so i did and off i went to Nunavut and uh spent 10 years um up there again remarkable wow. and incredible and uh you know, seeing, um, because there was no physician, so it was just us nurses, so delivering babies and supporting people and just watching this culture transform. Yeah. Because if you think about it, it only got settled in 1960. Yes. Um, and they really, when they, uh, they went from the igloo to the computer age with only a very few short years. Yep. Right? Yeah. So the transformation of that culture was remarkable. Um, and I ended up being the director of um, healthcare up there, where we amalgamated social services and healthcare together. Yeah. Which is such a beautiful concept. You cannot treat people physically without treating them psycho, you know, psychosocial and all of those. Right? Well, it's holistic, so right? Put it all together, right? Yeah. And uh, make sense on how you do things. And when I say um, holistic, I de- I, it's W H. Absolutely, that's that's true. Yeah, Um, because we're meant to like to spend a place that is is dark for so much part of the year. Um, you you learn to adapt. It never really affected me very much, but it would affect a lot of the nurses that were up there. So we we had it so that people got to go out every month and go down to Winnipeg, and you know just get out of the situation because I found the 24-hour daylight harder to deal with. Oh, okay. Because that was late all the time. But um, it, it was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, like we could do a whole show on uh, just what it was like in Nunavik. But um, that was when I, I, I tell people I reached 40 and I was like, oh my God, I forgot <laughs> to get married. And, <laughs> Um, luckily found my husband, Frank, who was in charge of the telehealth and the IT up there, and uh, we had babies and came back down and settled in B.C. And became grandparents? Well, parents. I didn't even, I just went at 40, became a parent, where most people think I'm the grandmother, but I'm really the mother. So, I said if I had a dollar for everybody that, uh, Thanks for my grandchildren. Oh, oh, that's so great. Part one of Sharon Hurd's interview with Donna Flood of the Hospice Society 
as uh, first heard Tuesday afternoon on the Senior Moments program here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You're listening to After 9, part two of that interview coming up in a moment. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of Sharon Hurd's interview with Donna Flood from the Hospice Society. Donna, I always feel um, selfish when I know these things and other people don't because I find your story so exciting and uh, and you're such a loving and calm person. But now maybe I know why. <laughs> a refugee <laughs> camp, Calcutta. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't know those parts. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I say. Like in Nurses Week, I unequivocally would do it all again. It has been the best profession for me. And I am so thankful it's given me tons of opportunity. Yes. Um, and I absolutely value the work that the nurses are doing out there right now. When they're a little bit scared, they've got their families at home they're trying to protect, and they just march through and march forward um, because they care for our community. So Yeah, some of my, the most wonderful men, women I've ever met in my whole entire life are in the nursing profession. Um, now, And so now you have hospice to be... Uh, accountable and uh, responsible for, and uh, I think that's a, a huge responsibility as well. And you're doing a little um, fun thing right now, and I wondered how it was going. Oh, it's turned out way better than we could have even anticipated. The amount of people in the community that are out there walking is um, the hospice color walk that is together apart, and yeah. so that people are walking on their own or with their families. And we challenge people to walk 100K in the month of May. Wow. And people are sharing their stories. We have prizes for, you know, a little I Spy game to spy different colors. And it's just, you know, um, a really fun um, way to get people outside and sharing memories. A lot of it is, you know what, take the time to take your kids and share memories of people maybe that have passed um, so that we can keep legacies going and stories going. Because my fear is that we're losing a lot. Um, yes, I you know, agree. So we really need to, to, to share, you know, what was your mom's first job? What was her favorite color? Let your kids know um, because they're remarkable. Yes, and, and I could tell you more about my dad than my mom. And, and I'm not sure why. Uh, um, I know more about my mom's childhood than I do my dad's. I think she didn't have a very nice childhood. Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. A lot of moms but, didn't. But and, you know what? That's even important to share because then it shows us how important it is to to be out there and fighting for the rights of women and girls and protecting, you know, all of that. Right? Yes, exactly. And so, well, I'm glad that it's it's uh, everybody's participating because it's it's fun and we are having great weather. And I've got a lot of uh, friends who are out walking every day, maybe twice a day. And uh, I'm just in a mud hole out here, so I'm. <laughs> <laughs> it's drying up slowly. And so how? So you still have a, um, available uh, services available for people yes. to phone in, um, right? 
absolutely. Um, things are a little bit different than what they've ever been, but uh, we're doing a lot of our um, grief support and caregiver support virtually. Yeah. And it's turned into a better success than what we even thought it would be. People have really sort of embraced it. They feel happy about it. They feel that they're able to be able to to still have that peer support. Um, yeah. We're sort of opening up to have um, a few people to be together with social distancing, but others are choosing to stay on virtually, that they really like the virtual connection with other people. So, um, you know, what may come out of this is another opportunity to stretch past our community and support people right across the North with grief programs. So, um, you know, what I always say, through adversity comes opportunity, so this has really opened a whole new way to ensure that we can connect. I think I think uh, uh, they're finding that out in a whole different way, different ways that we've adjusted, and and maybe uh, we're doing something that we didn't used to do, like communicating and uh, remembering. And I spend a lot of time on the phone with old friends, and uh, there's a lot of remembering going on, and uh, and. You know, in a way, there could be some outcomes that are very positive from this uh, horrible experience we're having. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think people are, are talking and sharing now. There's no longer a quick text, need to hear, go there. People are actually taking that time to FaceTime and Zoom or telephone. As they're picking up the telephone again, right? Yes. Um, yeah, so how great that um, we're getting connectedness. And my one friend, she's, she's met remembering so many things from her childhood. I really wanted to do a phone-in. She's uh, from another community, but I think I can do, do a phone-in because she's re- realizing what an interesting life she had, even if she's just, if she says, just been a wife. I mean, my God, she's a creator. And, and, and I think that's exactly what you're getting at, is that people are starting to recognize their abilities. And, and their um, creativeness. Well, it's pushing us out of um, our relevances and what we own, like consumers. And if that yes. is the only thing that stops, you know, that's not a bad thing, that sort of acquisition of things, right? Where yep. really the acquisition of memories and people is so much more important. Yep. And, and so I'm really excited that the virtual connection is working out um, uh, for because people need to reach out. This is a time when it is important to have connection. And so they can phone, they can, can they hook up to the computers and, and Facebook, FaceTime? Yes. We have lots of different ways, whether they're comfortable on a phone call on one-to-one, whether they want to do, join some of our um, Zoom meetings, um, whether they just want FaceTime with one of our um, counseling volunteers. Um, we sort of have a telephone conversation first to find out what will work best for them. Um, but really, whether you're caring for somebody at home who's ill, which is can be incredibly hard and lonely, yes. we can help. Yeah. Or whether you're, you're know, suffering a loss because you know what's happening? People aren't even able to have funerals. They're not even able to be with the people when they die. Isn't that awful? It's, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's the one thing I'm hoping to change soon is just being able to open up for visitors again and be with people and allow people to have some closure. 
Yeah. I, I just, it, it just sort of grabs your stomach, doesn't it, when you think about not being able to spend the last moments with your mom or dad or, or your child, which would be even worse. And it, it, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And uh, all those things don't stop because COVID has come a long way. Right? Yeah, so, exactly. But it sort of paused us in the way we can do things, but people dying is still, you know, yeah. Still there. Yeah. So. Uh, it, it's it's just the statistics are overwhelming, and it's not just it's worldwide. Everybody is experiencing this, and you know the the seniors um, that and you don't just have seniors in in um, the hospice. You have everyone who who needs to have care. And uh, are you uh, still receiving people coming in? Are you still able to do yes. that? We we still uh, anybody that needs hospice care um, is 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 welcome into our house. And uh, yeah, we've been about 80 percent occupancy. So uh-huh. um, people are still finding us. Yeah. Um, the only thing that you know, um, and this is the first time I've ever said it, but. Um, you know, we're struggling uh, uh, a bit financially We just because we don't have the donations. Um, so I just want uh, to encourage people just to join the Color Walk, donate to the Color Walk, or donate uh, directly to hospice. Um, our costs and our services don't change. We can't reduce anything. The only That's thing right. we can reduce is yep. our revenue coming in. Our store and our uh, fundraising has stopped, but our oh. output is still the same. So... Um, if people have anything um, or looking, you know, if they if they maybe haven't uh, gone out to eat this week and they have an extra few dollars, certainly um, think of us at hospice as we continue to provide that work. Yeah, because nothing changes for you guys. You're you're. I was talking to someone yesterday about how you're funded so much from the government and you have to raise the other five hundred thousand or however much it is. It's too much money. I mean, um, to raise, you shouldn't have to raise that kind of money. Uh, It should be there because you're doing absolute uh, work that is invaluable. I mean, I, if, if that's where I want to be, if uh, I end up having to have uh, some kind of care, my desire is to be in our hospice here in town because I know how much uh, you all love people and, and what care you give. And so really, folks, if you're not spending money on, on restaurants and, and uh, going out to the movies and, and to the, the pub, what about putting that money towards the uh, hospice and uh, helping them out? Yeah, and what they need to know, too, is 100% of that money really goes into the service that we do. It, yep. It's money that drives the work. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you know, yeah. we can't we can't sort of carve off bits that we don't do because it's the work, right? Yeah, exactly. So. And so I hope people will support you. And, you know, I just think you're fantastic. I think uh, hospice is wonderful. All of your staff are so great. Donna, I mean, maybe this is the right way uh, for your last part of your career. 
you know what? I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think everything has culminated into this thing where I need to be. Yeah. Sharon Heard with Donna Flood from Tuesday Afternoon Senior Moments Program here on 93.1 CFIS-FM talking about how this is National Nurses Week. A little bit of background about uh, Donna and her experiences as a nurse. In a moment, we'll wrap up after 9. Stick around. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we have a few minutes left, so we'll wrap up with the uh, latest news stories from your online news news source, PrinceGeorgeCitizen.ca. Air travel uh, will likely uh, is likely to change when governments lift travel restrictions aimed at reducing the spread of COVID-19 and public confidence recovers. Uh, most major airlines already ask passengers before they board how they feel and require all passengers and crew to wear masks during flights. Seats and screenings are wiped with disinfectants that airlines say stay active on surfaces, killing vis- viruses for up to 10 days. Some also require passengers' hands be sprayed with sanitizer uh, when boarding. WorkSafe BC guidelines are expected to be ready by Friday as part of the BC government's phased relaxing of pandemic restrictions. The workers, uh, worker uh, safety guidelines are a key measure needed for businesses such as restaurants, hair salons, and physiotherapists to reopen potentially as early as May 19th after the Victoria Day long weekend. Uh, the WorkSafe BC guidelines will help industry sectors develop their own individual work safety plans in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. While WorkSafe BC does not have to sign off on individual plans, businesses are expected to have them in place before opening. Groups such as the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association and the Beauty Council of Western Canada have been working with WorkSafe BC and the province to create industry-specific guidelines. And from outdoor kids' movies to uh, for co- uh, cooped-up apartment dwellers in Rio to online shopping and worship around the globe, the coronavirus pandemic has communities adapting to the realities of living with the pandemic while battling to save their economies. Japan was, was preparing to end its coronavirus state of emergency for most regions on Thursday, while uh, New Zealand further relaxed its restrictions after dreading its outbreak are, are deciding its outbreak is under control. A strong typhoon was roaring toward the eastern Philippines as authorities struggled to evacuate tens of thousands of people safely during a virus lockdown. Governors said social distancing would be nearly impossible for those in emergency shelters, some of which had been turned into quarantine facilities. And that'll wrap it for today's edition of After 9. Of course, tomorrow will be a Friday roundtable discussion following uh, tomorrow morning's 